Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot in One Two Buckle My Shoe, where Poirot pays what appears to be a routine visit to his dentist, but shortly after he leaves the clinic, the dentist is found dead with a gunshot wound to his head, an apparent suicide. Perot suspects foul play, and all those who enter the dentist's office after Perot are suspects. This one will be divided into a five-part series. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Philip Jackson as Chief Inspector Jap in Agatha Christie's One Two Buckle My Shoe. It has always been a matter of considerable wonder to me that while I can stand and face a man pointing a loaded pistol at my head with a certain amount of composure, the sight of a dentist's chair never fails to reduce me to a state of craven, trembling terror. What name, sir? Hercule Poirot. Just take a seat, sir. Mr Morley will call when he's ready. The waiting room was indescribably gloomy. A military-looking man with a fierce moustache buried his face in the times as I sat down next to him. A young man stood by the table, flicking over the covers of the magazines. An unpleasant and dangerous-looking man. Mr. Pierrot, this way, please. I felt as if I had been summoned to the guillotine. The boy led me to the lift and took me to Mr. Morley's surgery on the second floor. Sit yourself down on the chair, Monsieur Poirot. Thank you. Any special trouble to report? Uh, no, 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 nothing special. Open wide. Huh? Wider, please. Uh-huh. That's better. Mm. Uh, this filling is wearing down a little. Nothing serious, though. Uh-huh. Gums are in good condition, I'm glad to see. Mm. Ah, there's some trouble here. Uh-huh. Is it giving you any pain? Uh, no, no, uh, not at all, no. Well, I'm surprised at that. But we can soon put it to rights. And he reached up for his drill. I was rigid with terror. But there was no pain. And it was soon over. I'm making up your filling myself this morning because Miss Neville has been called away. Some relative of hers in the country struck down with something or other. And the patient before you was late sort of thing that always happens on a busy day. <laughs> I'll tell you something I've always noticed. The big people, the important people, never keep you waiting. And this morning, I've got one of the most important of the lot, Alastair Blunt. <laughs> always precisely on the dot. And such a quiet, unassuming fellow. You'd never guess that he was the head of the greatest banking concern in England. And when he sits in that chair, all he wants to talk about is his garden. Rinse, please. Mm-hmm. It's the answer, you know, to all their 
Hitlers and Mussolinis. We don't make a fuss over here. Look how democratic our king and queen are and how seriously they take the job. I never fail to be impressed by the way they always remember names and faces. They never forget or make a mistake, mind you. Neither do I. I don't remember names, but it's remarkable the way I always remember a face. One of my patients the other day, for instance, not someone who'd ever been in my surgery before, but I knew I'd seen the face somewhere. Can't put a name to it yet, but it will come to me. Rinse again, please. Well, I think that's taken care of that. Just close, very gently. Mm -hmm. You don't feel the filling at all? No, 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 no. Very good. That will be all then, Monsieur Poirot. <sighs> Until the next time. I felt like a man set free. I walked down the two flights of stairs with a debonair step. The military gentleman had evidently been dealt with by Mr. Molly's partner, but the restless young man was still there. And in the corner, a well-dressed man was reading The Field. Mr. Blunt? So that was the wealthiest man in England. A man who could say yes and no to governments. And yet he had to go and suffer in the dentist chair like everyone else. As I came out of the house, a taxi drew up. A foot protruded from the door, a neat ankle and quite a good quality stocking. The shoe was shiny new patent leather with a large gleaming buckle. And the old nursery rhyme flashed across my mind. One, two, buckle my shoe. As she got out of the cab, she caught her shoe and the buckle was wrenched off. Oh, that's your buckle, madame. Oh, how very kind. Thank you. Alas, she did not live up to the promise of that neat ankle. Untidy grey-yellow hair, unbecoming shapeless green clothes. I climbed into the taxi she had vacated. Ah, I was free. Free from Mr. Morley and his drill for the next six months. It's Jap. I hear you went to the dentist this morning, is that so? Oh, Scotland Yard evidently knows everything. Dentist by the name of Morley, 58 Queen Charlotte Street? Yes, that is so. It was a genuine visit, was it? I mean, you didn't go to put the wind up him or something of the sort. I would never dare to put wind up a dentist. I had a tooth filled. How did he seem to you? Manner much as usual? Quite as usual, yes. Why? Because not very much later, he shot himself. Oh, mon Dieu. That surprises you? Most certainly. I'm not too happy about it myself. I suppose you wouldn't like to come round. Where are you? In his surgery. I will join you immediately. Well, there you are. Bullet hole through his right temple. And that is the pistol? Yes. Seen enough? Oh, yes, quite enough. All right, you can move him now. So, tell me. He could have shot himself. There are only his fingerprints on the gun. But you are not satisfied? There doesn't seem any reason why he should do it. 
He was in good health. He was making money. He wasn't mixed up with a woman. At least not so far as we know he wasn't. He wasn't moody or depressed. That's partly why I wanted to hear if you'd noticed anything. No, no. When did it happen? Can't say exactly. Nobody seems to have heard the shot. But there are two closed doors between here and the passage with bays fitted around the edges to deaden the screams of the victims in the chair, I should imagine. Three, four, shut the door. What was that? Oh, nothing, nothing. Um, when was the murder discovered? Round about 1.30, by the page boy, Alfred Biggs. It seems that Morley's 12.30 patient was kicking up a bit of a fuss about being kept waiting. About ten past one, the boy came up and knocked. There was no answer, but he didn't dare come in here. He'd got into trouble with Morley before for doing the wrong thing. He went down again, and the patient stormed off at 1.15. So, after a bit, the boy went up again and looked in. What exactly was the system for showing up the patient's? When Morley was ready, he pressed that buzzer over there uh-huh. and the boy took the patient to the lift. So when did Morley press the bell last? At five minutes past twelve. And the boy showed up a Mr Amberiotis. He's staying in the Savoy. And what time did he leave? The boy didn't show him down, but I rang the Savoy and Amberiotis said he looked at his watch at the front door and it was twenty-five minutes past twelve. Was it his own pistol? No, it wasn't. According to his sister, who lives with him in the flat upstairs, he hadn't got a pistol. That door over there, that is where his secretary works, is it not? Miss Neville. Seems she is away today. Yes, he told me. That again is a point against suicide. What, you mean she was gone out of the way? Hmm. Well, we come back to the same point. Who on earth would have wanted to murder an inoffensive chap like that? Who could have murdered him? <laughs> Almost anybody. His sister could have come down from the flat above and shot him. His partner, Riley, could have come across from his own surgery and shot him. The boy, Alfred, could have shot him. And Amberiotis could have shot him. Easiest of the lot. But why should some rich Greek want to murder an inoffensive dentist? The motive is the stumbling block. Morley wasn't a danger to anybody. I wonder. What's up your sleeve now? A chance remark he made. He said he never forgot a face. He mentioned a patient he knew he'd seen somewhere before. Sounds a bit far-fetched to me. You didn't notice any of the other patients this morning? There was a young man in the waiting room who looked as if he were longing to murder someone. But he probably just had a toothache. We'll check on everybody who was in the building this morning. Let's start by having a talk with Morley's sister. I haven't really managed to have more than a word or two so far. It is quite incredible. There is no reason, no reason at all, why my brother should have taken his own life. And he was quiet as usual this morning before he started work? He was most put out that his secretary had been called away. He mentioned that it was something to do with the illness of a relative. She got a telegram that her aunt had had a stroke and went off to Somerset by an early train. My brother thought... Yes, Miss Morley? The fact of the matter is that Miss Neville has got herself engaged to rather an unsuitable young man, and Henry, my brother was very vexed about it, and it occurred to him that this young man might have persuaded her to take the day off. And what does he do, this young man? What's his name, by the way? Carter. Frank Carter. He was an insurance clerk, I believe. He lost his job some weeks ago and doesn't seem to be able to get another. Gladys actually lent him some of her savings, and Henry was very annoyed about it. Did your brother try to persuade her to break off the engagement? Yes, he did. Then this Frank Carter could quite possibly have a grudge against your brother. If you're suggesting he might have shot Henry, that's nonsense. 
and the girl didn't take his advice. She is foolishly devoted to Carter. And how did your brother get on with his partner, Mr. Riley? As well as you can hope to get on with an Irishman who's too fond of the bottle. Sorry to stir you, miss, but it's Miss Neville. She's back in a rare taking. Shall she come in, she wants to know? Tell her to wait for a minute. I won't be long. I'd like to have a word with her. OK. That boy has a sad trial. I don't think it'd have lasted another week. Under the pretext of looking through Molly's papers, Japs steered Miss Neville away from Miss Molly to her little office by the surgery. He couldn't possibly have shot himself. I just won't believe it. And that phone call I had, it was just a heartless practical joke. What do you mean by that, Miss Neville? There was never anything wrong with my aunt at all. She couldn't understand it when I suddenly turned up. Of course, I was enormously relieved, but why should anybody do such a nasty thing to me? And you're quite sure it wasn't your friend Mr Carter who sent the telegram? Frank? Whatever for? Oh, I see. You're suggesting it was a put-up job between us. Well, neither of us would ever dream of doing a thing like that. You must understand, Miss Neville, that in a matter like this, we have to consider every possibility. And now, if you would be so good as to tell us a little about the patients who came to see Mr Morley this morning. At ten o'clock, there was Mrs Soames, about her new plate. Then there was Lady Grant, an elderly lady who lives in Lounge Square... Then there was Hercule Poirot. But of course, there you are. I'm sorry, but I'm so upset. No, no, do not apologise, mademoiselle. 11.30, Mr Alistair Blunt, the banker. Then Miss Sainsbury Seal, who rang up specially, terribly fussy she is, and never stops talking. Then at 12 o'clock, Mr Amberiotis. We've never seen him before. He rang up from the Savoy. Then Miss Kirby at 12.15, but she left, I believe. There was, when I arrived, a tall military gentleman. Oh, that would be Colonel Abercrombie, one of Mr Riley's patients. Shall I get you his book? We'd like to have a word with Mr Riley himself as soon as he can see us. Of course. I'll see if he's free. You're very quiet, old cock. Something on your mind? I was just wondering, why Chief Inspector Jap? What do you mean? An officer of your eminence. Is he usually called to a case of apparent suicide? Oh, that's simple enough. Alistair Blunt. As soon as the divisional inspector heard he'd been here this morning, he'd gone to the yard. Mr Blunt is the kind of person we take care of in this country. You mean there are people who would like him out of the way? You bet there are. The Reds, for a start. And our black-shirted friends, too. It's Blunt and his group who are standing solid behind the government. That's why, if there were the least chance that there was any funny stuff intended against Blunt this morning, they wanted a full investigation. Mm, that is more or less what I guessed. I have a feeling that there was a mistake of some kind. The proper victim was, or should have been, Alistair Blunt himself. You're assuming a lot, you know. I'm afraid Mr Riley's tied up with an extraction. He'll be free in about ten minutes. In that case, we'll have another word with the boy, Alfred. I'd like to ask him about that chap you thought looked like a murderer. The American bloke, you mean? American? Oh, yeah. You could tell by his voice. Howard Rakes, his name was. Come early. His appointment with Mr Riley wasn't till 11.30. What's more, he didn't keep it. He didn't keep it? No, I come in for him when Mr Riley's buzzer went at 20 to 12, and he weren't there. Must have funked it. Then he left shortly after me. That's right, sir. He went just after I'd taken up a posh bloke who arrived in a rolls. Then I let in a Miss Sunbury Seal, and then I took my elevenses in the kitchen, and as I came back, Mr Morley's buzzer went for Miss Seal, so I took her up. And after Miss Seal? There was some foreign gent. And did you see him leave? I can't say I did. He must have let himself out. And where were you from 12 o'clock onwards? 
I always sit in the lift waiting until the front doorbell rings or one of the buzzers goes. And how do you pass the time? I read a book. No harm in that, is there? No. It's not as though I could be doing something else. And what were you reading? Death at 11.45, sir. It's a real corker. Would you hear the front door close from where you were sitting? You mean anyone going out? Mm. I don't think I should. What I mean is I shouldn't notice. The lift's right at the back of the hall. So, what happened next? Well, there was this last lady, Miss Shirty. I waited for Mr Morley's buzzer to go, but nothing happened. And at one o'clock, the lady got quite ratty. It did not occur to you to go up and see if Mr Morley was ready? Not me, sir. Couldn't possibly interrupt him. For all I knew, the last person was still up there. I got to wait for the buzzer. Of course, if I'd known Mr Morley had done himself in... Did the buzzer usually go before the patient came down, or the other way round? Depends. Usually the patient comes down the stairs and then the buzzer goes. Sometimes Mr Morley would be a few minutes before he rang for the next patient. If he was in a hurry, he'd ring as soon as they were out of the room. Now tell me, is there anything else you can remember about this morning? Anything that struck you as uh, unusual? Not really. Except Miss Neville's young man come round, and in a rare taking not to find her here. When was this? Sometime after 12, it must have been. When I told him Miss Neville wasn't here, he said he'd wait to see Mr Morley. And did he wait? Can't think of it, he didn't. He wasn't in the room when I looked in later. He must have given it up as a bad job. I'm sorry to disturb you, but Mr Riley asked me to tell you that he's ready to see you now. His surgery's on the first floor. I'll take you down. I don't think I can really be of much use to you, but I'll tell you one thing. Morley was the last person I would have thought might take his own life. I could have done it, but never him. And why might you have done it, Mr Riley? Oh, I've got no end of problems. Most of them financial. I'd never managed to suit my expenditure to my income. Oh, but Morley was a careful man. You'll find no debts, no money complications, I can assure you of that. Any love affairs? <laughs> Heavens above. The man had no joy of living at all. Right under his sister's puritanical thumb he was, poor soul. He had no life outside his surgery. Did you notice anything unusual about the behaviour of any of your patients this morning? You mean, might one of them have nipped upstairs and shot Morley? Betty Heath's barely 15 and Colonel Abercrombie's not exactly quick on his feet. And there was another patient, I think. Mr Barnes, retired civil servant, very precise and a bit fussy. I don't see him waving a gun about. What about Howard Rakes? The chap who walked out on me. I wasn't pleased about that. I could have done with the fee. Was he a regular patient? Never heard of him before. I know nothing about the fellow. He rang up and particularly asked for an appointment this morning. Where did he ring from? The Holborn Palace Hotel. An American by the sound of him, Alfred says. And what can you tell us about Miss Neville? The beautiful blonde secretary. I might have been tempted. In fact, I was tempted, but not Mr Morley. Georgina would definitely not have approved of that kind of thing. His relations with the fair Gladys were perfectly pure and beyond reproach. I never suggested that they weren't. Oh, you must excuse my carnal mind. I thought it might be an attempt on your part to chercher la femme. Excuse me for mutilating your language, Monsieur Poirot. <sighs> my beautiful accent is the consequence of being educated by nuns. And this young man Gladys Neville was engaged to, Frank Carter? Morley didn't think much of him. I mean, even though he'd never have laid a finger on her, he could get quite possessive about Gladys. He tried to get her to turn Carter down. And this might have annoyed Mr Carter? I'm sure it did. But look here, is this really a suicide or are you investigating a murder? If it were a murder, would you have anything to suggest? Nothing. 
I suppose I'd like it to be Georgina. She's a grim, disapproving killjoy with temperance on the brain, always suggesting that my hand shakes too much to handle the drill and complaining that I breathe alcohol fumes over the patients. But I can't really imagine anyone killing Morley, or him killing himself, for that matter. I was fond of him, and I shall miss him. Thank you, Mr Riley. Is there a phone I can use anyway? Of course, the office is next door. Feel free to ring whoever you like. Well, that's an odd turn-up for the book. The Savoy say that Mr Amberiotis isn't feeling very well and would rather not see anyone this afternoon. But he's going to see me, and he's not going to give me the slip. I've got two men posted outside the hotel. You think that Amberiotis shot Murray? I can't be sure, but he was the last person to see him alive. Amberiotis says that Morley was perfectly well when he left him at 12.25. There was still five minutes to go before the next appointment. Did someone come into the surgery during those five minutes? Carter, say? Or Riley? What happened? Because by five and twenty to one at the latest, Morley was dead. So, what do you propose to do now? I'm going to have a word with every patient he saw this morning. There's just a possibility that he may have said something to one of them that could put us on the right track. Mr Alistair Blunt said he could give me five minutes at 4.15, so we'll start with him. He's got a place on the Chelsea Embankment. The Gothic House, as they call it. We'll take a cab. Tell me a little about this Alistair Blunt. Beyond what I've read in the papers, I know nothing. He seems always to have deliberately kept out of the limelight. Oh, yes. He keeps himself to himself. Hang on. I made a few notes about him. The key to his career is that he married money. A woman called Rebecca Sanseverato, 20 years older than him. Her mother was the Rotherstein heiress, and her father the head of the Arnholt Bank of America. Her brothers were killed in an air crash, and she got the lot. And uh, was Alistair Blunt her first husband? No, he wasn't. Just a moment. She married a Prince Felipe de Sanseverato, a bit of a rogue by all accounts. After three years, she divorced him. He was a child, but he died. So how did Blunt come into her life? He was a junior partner in the London branch of one of our banking concerns. Don't ask me what happened, but within six months of their meeting one another, they were married. And it seems to have worked out rather well. Devoted to one another, apparently. She died ten years ago. And did he marry again? No, he didn't. She'd left him everything, of course, but he didn't go in for the high life. Led a blameless existence, still does. Round a golf every now and then country houses in Norfolk and in Kent. Ah, here we are. Spot on time, too. Chief Inspector Jab? At your service, sir. And this is Monsieur Hercule Poirot, who's taking an interest in the case. Enchanté. I know your name, of course, Monsieur Poirot. And surely, quite recently... This morning, Monsieur, in the waiting room of Le Pauvre Monsieur Morley. Of course, I knew I'd seen you somewhere. So, what can I do for you, Chief Inspector? I am extremely sorry to hear about poor Morley. You were surprised, Mr Blunt? Very surprised. I should have thought him a most unlikely person to commit suicide. Did he seem in good spirits this morning? I think so. To tell you the truth, I'm an awful coward about going to the dentist, and I didn't really notice anything very much. Not till it was over. But I must say, Morley seemed perfectly natural then. Cheerful and busy. You've been to him often? This must have been my third or fourth visit. Who recommended Mr. Morley to you originally? I can't.
can't for the life of me remember. If it should come to you, perhaps you will uh, let us know? I will, certainly. But does it matter? I have an idea that it might matter very much. Hi. Hi. You there. You're that detective fellow, aren't you? Hercule Poirot? I cannot deny it, mademoiselle. And you are? Chief Inspector Chap. Why are you here? Has something happened to Uncle Alistair? Why should you think that, Miss... Oliveira. Jane Oliveira. There's nothing wrong with Mr. Blunt, I'm glad to say. Did he call you in about something, Monsieur Poirot? We called on your uncle, Miss Oliveira, to see if he could throw any light on a case of suicide that happened this morning. Who suicide? Mr. Blunt's dentist and Mr. Morley of Queen Charlotte Street. That's absurd. Absurd. What an extraordinary thing to say. Interesting. Right, we've just got time to call in on Miss Sainsbury Seal on our way to the Savoy. She's staying at the Glengarry Court Hotel. There's a corner just here in the recess. We shan't be disturbed. <sighs> Would you care for a cup of tea? No, thank you, madam. This is Monsieur Hercule Poirot. Really? Madame. Now, please, feel free to ask me anything you like. Such a distressing business. Poor man, I suppose he had something on his mind. Did he seem to you worried at all? Oh, I can't really say that he did. But I doubt whether I would have noticed, not under the circumstances. I have a perfect horror of going to the dentist. Mm. Can you tell us who else was in the waiting room while you were there? Uh, there was just one young man when I went in. I think he must have been in pain because he was muttering to himself and looking quite wild. And then suddenly he jumped up and went out. Did you notice whether he left the house when he went out of the room? I don't know at all. But it can't have been Mr Morley he was going to see because the boy came and took me up there only a few minutes later. So that young chap with a toothache was the only other person you noticed? Well, there was a very peculiar-looking foreigner who came out of the house just as I arrived. <coughs> that was I, madame. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> so it was. <laughs> I'm getting so short-sighted. <laughs> well, I think that will be all for the moment, Miss Sainsbury Seal. Though it may be necessary for you to give evidence at the inquest. The inquest? Is this likely to be your address for the near future? Well, yes, I suppose so. I came back from India a few months ago. I was working as an elocution teacher in Calcutta. You see, as a girl, I was on the stage, only small parts. So know. we'd be able to get hold of you here? Oh, yes. If by any chance my name should be given in the papers, you will make sure they get it right. Maybell, Sainsbury, Seal... And if they care to mention that I appeared in As You Like It at the Oxford Repertory Theatre, and that was, of course, my most famous... A bit of limelight for the poor soul, I suppose. <laughs> Do you really want her at the inquest? Probably not. It depends. But I'm more than ever convinced that this isn't a case of suicide. And the motive? Beats me for the moment. But let's see what Amberiotis has to say for himself. And I'm not going to have any nonsense about him not feeling up to it. Mr Amberiotis, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid you can't see him. Oh, yes, I can, my lad. Chief Inspector Jack, Scotland Yard. I'm afraid you don't understand, sir. Mr Amberiotis died half an hour ago.
In part one of Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat, Chief Inspector Jap by Philip Jackson, Alistair Blunt, Philip Franks, Riley, Stephen Tompkinson, Morley, Matthew Devereaux, Georgina Morley, Caroline Wildey, Miss Sainsbury Seal, Joanna McCallum, Jane Oliveira, Amanda Waring, Gladys Neville, Sophie Arnold, Alfred, Tom George. The music was composed by Tom Smale. One Two Buckle My Shoe is dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams. Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening.